Did you know the national motto for the United States may derive from an ancient recipe for pesto? In this episode, I'd like to talk about that and how it's related to our life of faith. Stay tuned. Hello friends, Pastor Tim Westermeyer here, Senior Pastor of St. Philip the Deacon in the western suburbs of Minneapolis. Good to be with you as always. We're taping this the week before the 4th of July weekend. So I have the 4th of July on my mind and I actually have been thinking about the Great Seal of the United States, which includes a very famous phrase, you've heard it no doubt, e pluribus unum which means out of many, one. Um, and so I wanna reflect a little bit about that today, give a little bit of the history of the actual use of that phrase in the seal of the United States, and then connect it to uh, sort of another issue related to our, our life of faith. Um, I am, as I've probably talked about here before, interested in um, typography, in graphic design, uh, logo development. So it may, it may or may not interest you to know, there's actually a gentleman and I'm going to butcher this name, so apologies to him or his family who are still around, Pierre-Eugène de Cimetière, uh, who actually proposed the one idea for the Great Seal of the United States in 1776 to the committee that was responsible for developing it. Uh, we'll try to find an image of this. It does include that phrase, e pluribus unum, and it includes um, 13 shields uh, representing the 13 original colonies, um, each was associated with one of the, with the homeland that they had come from. Uh, there are six origin uh, nations, maybe you know this, England, Scotland, Ireland, Holland, the Netherlands, France, and Germany. Um, so that's interesting. It's also, I did not know this until I started doing a little research on this. The, the phrase e pluribus unum actually has 13 letters in it. And so there's a nice connection there to the original 13 colonies. Now, where did this gentleman, Mr. Pierre Eugene de Cimetière, come up with the idea? Almost certainly he came up with it from a magazine that was published in London at the time called Gentleman's Magazine, uh, founded in 1731, which, and, and used that same phrase, because it collected articles from many sources to create one periodical. So that's sort of the immediate um, history for the, the, the use of the phrase. But the phrase itself has a, at least a couple of more ancient um, uh, etymologies. One comes from Virgil, the poet Virgil, both Virgil and the other gentleman, Cicero, they lived in first century BC. Uh, and again, maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't, but it, in the use of that Virgil had of it, believe it or not, it was for the, uh, a recipe for what we would probably call pesto today. So he talks about um, making this paste from pulping basil, garlic, and cheese. And then he goes on to say, all of those uh, ingredients, one by one, do lose their proper powers, and out of many comes a single color, not entirely green. So that's interesting because it sort of takes all of these ingredients and it turns them into this sort of mush or a pulp or a paste that has a common color and consistency, but the original ingredients sort of lose themselves into that. That is not just anticipating what I'm gonna to get to, what it means to be part of the church, okay? Cicero, though, the other historic place that it's likely, more likely actually from this phrase, um, and again, he lived in the first century BC, he writes in, in a, 
De Officius, a treatise completed by him in 44, he, he talks about um, one made out of many in this way, more in the sense of a family. When each person loves the other as much as himself, it makes one out of many. So there's sort of this sense of um, coming together in love. Now, I mentioned, again, th th that's sort of the history of the phrase. Um, I mentioned I wanted to say a word about how that connects to our faith. And I'm going to point you to uh, Paul's letter to fir the first... Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. This is a very famous chapter, chapter 12, where he talks about um, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's uh, chapter 12, verse 27. You are the body of Christ. That means all believers in space and time are the body of Christ and individually members of it. C.S. Lewis picked up that idea in a short little essay, which I've talked about before. It is maybe one of the most important things that I've ever read by him that is called membership. And the whole essay is taken up with discussing this Pauline idea of what does it mean to be a member of the church. And I'm just going to lift up a couple of simple points. I would commend the essay to you. And here's one thing he says, though. Again, this is C.S. Lewis in the essay, Membership. By members, he, Paul, meant what we should call organs. Things, this is an important phrase, things essentially different from and complementary to one another. A row of identically dressed and identically trained soldiers set side by side where a number of citizens listed as voters in a constituency are not members of anything in the Pauline sense. And I'm afraid, he says, that when we describe a man or woman as a member of the church, we usually mean nothing Pauline. We mean only that he is a, he or she is a unit, right? In which case, we become sort of like that paste or that pesto that Virgil talked about. We come into this factory called the church and we get mushed up into a pulp and we all look and taste and smell the same. Folks, that may be the caricature of what it means to be Christian. It is not, though. And I, I cannot emphasize this strongly enough that when we come into the church, when we, we become part of the body of Christ, we rather than become more like everyone else in the church, we become differentiated. I think we've talked about this in some other episodes. But um, again, to finish that thought, C.S. Lewis in that same essay says, those who are members of one another part of this same body, become as diverse as the hand and the ear. And then he says that is why the worldlings, the non-Christians I suppose you could translate that to, are so monotonously alike compared with the almost fantastic variety of the saints. All of this is a way of saying, my friends, God needs you. God doesn't need you to be someone you aren't. God doesn't need you to ape the, the personality or the traits of someone else. God needs you to be yourself. And I'll end with, a, I, I think I'm getting this quote about right from Mother Teresa, who said very famously, you can do something I can't do. I can do something you can to, can't do. Together, let us do something beautiful for God. And that's my prayer for all of us today. As always, be well, stay in touch, and God bless. Mm -hmm.